0: I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. That is Proverbs 4, verses 11 and 12. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. Happy New Year. So thrilled to be back with you in the new year and to be back uh, sharing these bonus episodes with Dr. Jared Brown with you. Um, Thank you for tuning in. This is actually the 17th bonus episode in our series we call What Every Adoptive and Foster Parent Needs to Know About Trauma and FASD and all of those things that relate to that. Um, With our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown, we are tackling topics of importance for all of us foster, adoptive, and kinship caregivers. So grab a notebook and a pen. You will want to take notes. So feel free to pause right now. Go grab something to write with and write on. Um, Or you you could just listen through right now and then Listen through a second time if you feel like, yep, I really should have taken notes with that. You can listen again and pick up all of those things that you really want to make sure that you don't forget and maybe something you want to research out a little bit more. This is such excellent content. You're not going to want to miss a word of it. As a reminder, regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey drop uh, into your inbox on Mondays. This series uh, with Dr. Brown, this bonus series, we drop on Fridays. We're doing a total of 20 episodes in this particular series with Dr. Brown. Um, So this is just number 17. If this is the first time that you've tuned in, uh, make sure you go back and scroll through all of our episodes and you'll see the bonus ones listed there for you. um, So you can go back and, and, and listen to all of them and catch up. Um, If you are not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take a moment and subscribe and even leave a review. It really does make a huge impact and it helps other foster and adoptive and kinship caregivers easily find this podcast so that they can access this support and encouragement that we offer. Um, So we want to make sure that you do that. So please be sure to subscribe. Um, We've also got lots of vital resources and upcoming trainings for your unique parenting journey. So check this one out.
1: Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD. Diagnosed or not This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group A monthly VIP conversation And a private Facebook group Which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday To register, visit justicefororphansny.org Forward slash training forward slash FASD
0: And you won't want to miss our online workshops. I am offering a free 45-minute Lunch and Learn. It's an introduction to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Um, The next one is on Wednesday, January 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm also offering a three-hour deep dive into FASD um, using the FACETS uh, brain-based approach. I am um, a certified facilitator of the FACETS neurobehavioral model. Um, so I will be using that um, in that presentation, the three-hour presentation. Um, so there is a registration fee for that. It is Saturday January 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be offering some of these sessions on different days and evenings um, just to try to make sure that we offer everybody an opportunity with your schedule to be able to catch some of this amazing training that we offer. Um, You have to register even for the free Lunch and Learn. That's how you'll get the Zoom link. Um, So you would do that at justicefororphansny.org click events at the top of the page. Um, And we've included a link to our website in the show notes for this podcast episode to make it super easy for you to check it out. Now to our special guest, Dr. Jared Brown, PhD, is an assistant professor for Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. Jared has also been employed with Pathways Counseling Center also in St. Paul for the past 17 years. Pathways provides programs and services benefiting individuals impacted by mental illness and addictions. Jared is also the founder and CEO of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and the editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. Jared has completed four separate master's degree programs and holds graduate certificates in autism spectrum disorders, other health disabilities, and traumatic brain injuries. He is also a fetal alcohol spectrum disorders trainer, an autism specialist, and a mental health integrative medicine provider. That makes him the professional here, and he's going to share what he knows with us, take us to school. So please welcome back Dr.
1: Jared Brown. Welcome back, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me. A nice long break, but I'm glad to be back. I know. We're thrilled to have you
0: back on the show. New year and continuing this special series that we've been doing. Um, Our last episode together, you addressed the HPA axis, um, and I did my homework. So that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, um, which mediates the effects of stress um, by regulating the physiological processes for metabolism and the immune response and the nervous system and so on. And I've heard great um, feedback from our listeners who just really loved that episode um, and all that they have been learning. So today, you are going to explain alexithymia, which I had never heard of before until I heard you talking about it on another podcast. Um I know it has something to do with expressing and understanding emotions, Um, but Dr. Brown, would you explain what alexithymia is and
1: are there symptoms? How would we know? Yeah, so alexithymia is a threat to our emotional health and our physical health. So we all probably deal with it on some level at some time. Burnout can contribute to it. Half of people with autism, according to the research, have alexithymia, a very high percentage of people with traumatic brain injuries. 50 to 65% of people in drug and alcohol treatment programs have this, according to the research. And if we just look at the general population, around nine to 10% of folks just in the general population, if you don't factor in any disabilities or disorders, Deal with some varying level of this. I know your audience, a lot of folks have adopted a child who's been exposed to alcohol in utero. There is no empirical based articles that I'm aware of that have been published on FASD and alexithymia. There's a couple articles in the FASD world that mention alexithymia, maybe in passing, maybe it's just like one sentence here or there that say this is an issue in the population. I just don't know how many people with FASD have this, but I can tell you the work I've done, the consulting I've done with various groups and talking to professionals and caregivers, they may not use the word alexithymia, but see it all the time, the symptoms of it in people with FASD. So before we jump into alexithymia per se, I think it's very important to understand emotional understanding and that's a component of alexithymia so when we think of our ability to understand emotions do we know how to label our emotions do we know how to label when we're sad or mad or scared or frustrated so labeling emotions very very important do we understand emotional information within a group or interpersonal dynamic Interestingly, if you look at some of the marriage research on alexithymia, some research says that if alexithymia is introduced into a marriage, the risk of divorce goes up, especially when the other spouse doesn't know the person has alexithymia. It's a critical aspect of self-regulation development. So we know most people with FASD have self-regulation issues. And if somebody doesn't know how to label their emotions or understand emotions, that's probably going to contribute to self-regulation issues. So teaching people how to manage and understand and label emotions, you're actually teaching them self-regulation skills as well. Emotional understanding plays a critical role in reasoning, decision-making, and moral awareness. So if you ever work with someone that has moral reasoning deficits, like has a tendency to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, things like that, Dig into their emotional understanding. That could be a layer of a cause for that. It's not the only thing, but it's a layer. Emotional understanding deficits are very, very common among people that have had high levels of prenatal and postnatal trauma. So the adverse childhood experiences research, it's a critical component of emotional and social intelligence. What's the biggest predictor of success in life for humans having higher levels of emotional intelligence? The research says it plays a critical role in relational like competence. So how do we make friends? How do we keep friends? Are we involved in healthy relationships, group dynamics? We've talked about theory of mind before. Emotional understanding is a component of theory of mind and perspective taking and empathy, and it also plays a critical role in language capabilities. So emotional understanding, huge topic, and it bumps up against many other topics we've talked about in this series. So for alexithymia, it's really characterized by difficulties in our ability to express our emotions, describe our emotions, name them, label them, identify them. People that have higher levels of alexithymia oftentimes focus on concrete details of external events. They have a hard time going inward and having good introspection, self-awareness. So if you work with someone that has self-awareness deficits, lacks insight, the red light should come on. Is there some alexithymia at play here as well? So when you think about this, you might, in some cases, see someone with alexithymia have lack of emotional facial expressions, particularly during distressing events. They come off very flat in some cases it can limit their capacity for empathy as well. So it can really get in the way of empathetic understanding and expressions to other people. And that's one reason why if one spouse has alexithymia and the other spouse doesn't know anything about it, that spouse is going to think this person doesn't care, is unempathetic, is flat and cold and callous and aloof and checked out. The research is pretty clear on this, that higher rates of alexithymia co-occur with people with major depression, high levels of anxiety, anger control problems. People that have really poor coping skills might be more likely to have alexithymia, drug and alcohol problems. It's been shown to be much higher among people diagnosed with schizophrenia, eating disorders, chronic pain disorders, neurodegenerative kinds of disorders. I mentioned early on half of people with autism have alexithymia. It's not a disorder in and of itself. It's more of a deficit because it co-occurs with so many things. It's been referred to as a personality trait or a multifaceted personality construct. Some authors talk about it as a psychological impairment or a subclinical trait. Basically, it's a deficit that refers to no words for feelings. So if you're a parent of a child or a teenager who has true alexithymia, a lot of times then that child or teenager won't have words for their emotions, even though you can tell that they're in distress. And a lot of times they may not be able to name their emotions that I'm angry, sad, whatever's going on, but they are more likely to report chest pain headaches, stomach aches, body discomfort. So their emotions come out as body-related pain. Extreme cases, the person may call 911 thinking they're having a heart attack. They go to the emergency room. They run all the tests, nothing. They can't find anything wrong. All their emotions go into their body and cause a lot of internal distress. And over the long haul, many, many years, this has been linked to more skin disorders, migraine headaches, digestive health issues, sleep issues. And think about if you can't get those emotions out, they go somewhere, they keep going into our body and they wreak havoc and cause more inflammation. It's been linked to overactivation of our HPA access and the list goes on and on and on. I'll Sandra, I'll talk about some other deficits too in a minute, but I wanted to see if you had some thoughts questions
0: gosh yeah i'm sitting here thinking um a lot of this overlaps with the various primary characteristics of say fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um and i, I know early on um my youngest son who's now 17 when he was about six or seven we started to realize not knowing you know this 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 term alexithymia or anything but we started to realize he didn't really seem to understand other people's emotions or identify any of his own um so we kind of started working on that uh, you know more intentionally i have a big we, we got a big poster on the wall of actual children's faces in all the different you know Happy faces, sad faces, scared faces, that kind of thing, where we could um, talk about those different feelings, and you know, and, and we got these emotions cards, um, where we could talk about the different emotions and started to really just bring it to his attention. And I, I think he's much better now, we've made progress in that area. Um, so is, if, if an individual, you know, is is struggling with the, these traits from alexithymia, can they learn to identify emotions in themselves and others? Is it something that can improve over time if you're intentional about working on it?
1: I would say yes. There, there's many dimensions of alexithymia. It's probably outside the scope of our talk today to go deep in the weeds with that. But there's situational things that can cause this. So like just parental burnout or you have a lot of stress on the job or you don't sleep for two or three nights. That can cause these kind of symptoms. But there's organic based kinds of alexithymia as well, where it's more related to maybe some in utero trauma, maybe there was a some head trauma early on in life, so it's more organic based. So it depends on the situation, but absolutely interventions can make a difference. And there have been a ton of interventions talked about in this literature. This is a topic not talked about much in the FASD world, but. If you go online like the Google Scholar and type in the word alexithymia, you're going to find hundreds, if not thousands of articles that have talked about this topic within the context of so many different things. I do a lot of work in the area of forensic mental health. I've given a lot of talks on this. This has been studied within the context of violent offenders, sex offenders, homicide, child abuse, domestic violence. It's been studied within context of all kinds of mental health and medical health issues. It's been talked about a lot within the autism world, some within ADHD, some within intellectual and developmental disabilities, and quite a bit within the traumatic brain injury literature. So it's all over the map. So and there's lots of books written on this as well, which is pretty fascinating. If your audience goes online and Googles my name, I've published two articles Um, probably within the last handful of months, one for mental health folks uh, to learn more about alexithymia and one for criminal justice professionals. So there's just some easy readings that you can find online about the topic. So, But yeah, there's a lot we can do about it, no doubt about it. So just to recap where we're at. So think about alexithymia more as a personality characteristic in some cases. So some personality traits may be more prone to this than others. People that have more easygoing temperaments, more relaxed, more open to sharing their feelings with other people, people that have more secure attachment patterns, those are all protective factors. People that have insecure attachment patterns, don't trust anybody, never have learned how to get their emotions out, they might be more likely or more prone to having some of these symptoms. So again, difficulty verbalizing emotions describing them as well. So maybe they can verbalize their emotions sometimes, but they verbalize them incorrectly. So take that into account as well, where the person's really trying hard, but they're just not describing their emotions accurately. They can have difficulty in decoding their own emotions, but also problems decoding other people's emotions. So they may misread social cues. And this can really get in the way of Social understanding. So, anyone that runs a social skills group, if you're not learning about alexithymia, I think you're missing a big component of it. And in my experience, most professionals haven't had training in this topic, which is surprising considering half the people or more that you work with probably have this, according to the research. They can have a really hard time distinguishing between body sensations and feelings. So in some cases, that's where all that body emotion is at play. And they may think, oh, I'm having a heart attack or I'm having a panic attack, which they may be having a panic attack, but it could be because all these emotions keep going into their body and they just don't know how to get them out and label them. Interestingly too, people with higher levels of alexithymia may have a limited imagination. So imagination is very important for like, childhood play and being creative. I don't know I don't have any research to prove this, but I I suspect that this could be a factor with people with FASD if they struggle with creativity and lack of imagination could be one factor of many. This has also been referred to in the research literature as emotional blindness, which they're just blind to their own emotions and blind to the emotions and others and unfortunately alexithymia has also been talked about as a possible risk factor for suicide in some cases and higher levels of loneliness as well so this is a big deal it's a very important deficit we should all learn about it's not the only deficit but this is a big one in my opinion
0: Yeah, this is, it's incredible and and so interesting. And I know many, like I said, many of the symptoms, many of the things you described, um, I can kind of, you know, kind of put my finger on that with a couple of my own children who were, you know, had trauma and prenatal exposure to alcohol. Um, So how can parents and caregivers who, you know, adopted, they've, you know, our children tend to have childhood trauma adverse childhood experiences many have been prenatally exposed how can we know if this is alexithymia like can it be diagnosed
1: there's many screening tools that are out there the the gold standard screening tool in the research literature is it, it, it's called the toronto alexithymia screening tool there's other ones too Finding a professional who understands this, has training in it would be good. Again, being aware of the red flag indicators, knowing too that high levels of alexithymia have also been linked to having higher levels of negative affect. So the person might have more humor deficits. They may struggle with understanding humor. That's been talked about. They may have neurotic reaction patterns too. So you want to be aware of that it's been linked to having more mentalization deficits. So mentalization and theory of mind are often talked about hand in hand in the research. High levels of alexithymia have also been linked to having more insecure attachment patterns, more executive functioning impairments, higher levels of irritability and rumination, and emotional expression, and suppression deficits. So if you have a child or a teenager or an adult, and they have humor deficits. They have theory of mind deficits. They suppress their emotions all the time. They have insecure attachment patterns. They have rumination. They're irritable all the time. They seem to have heightened experiences of negative affect. They use drugs and alcohol. They they struggle with self-control. You have nothing to lose to look through this lens, even if the person never officially like gets diagnosed with having alexithymia which i don't know anyone that's ever had an official alexithymia diagnosis if you use interventions to help all these areas in in reality you're you're helping them improve their emotional awareness helping them improve their social intelligence is also very important because this can really get in the way of of social skills social competence Think about social intelligence as social emotional immaturity issues. So we know people with FASD a lot of times function several years younger than their chronological age. Several cases I've consulted on, the person with FASD who might be an 18-year-old prefers to hang out with 14-year-olds. That's not good. But in their mind, they function maybe that low. Social communication abilities fall under the umbrella of social intelligence, social problem solving, perspective taking, relationship building, our ability to navigate complex social situations and how we cooperate with others and turn taking abilities. These are all skills that fall under the umbrella of social intelligence. So these would be all areas to be on the lookout for and target with interventions as well. And in the alexithymia literature, too, you're going to hear the topic of interoception come up a lot. Maybe finding a professional who understands the topic of interoception. Interoception is it's really our ability to feel and witness the environment in ourselves. So we're we're more aware of our own heartbeat, our breathing. It relates to our autonomic nervous system. And I believe we're going to talk about the central nervous system in an episode coming up. So I'll talk more about the autonomic nervous system. It's basically our ability to sense emotions and just be aware of our internal body states when we're hungry, when we need to sleep, when we need to drink, working maybe with like a sensory specialist. That is another intervention you might want to try. And before I get into interventions, um, any other thoughts, Sandra, from your standpoint?
0: Well, this popped into my mind because it happened recently. And I know you can't like diagnose or anything, but I'll give an example. And you can just let me know if, you know, it could be, you know, maybe alexithymia playing coming into play here. But I have a 19 year old with diagnosed FAS um, and he does have um like he has a sense of humor, like he likes to be funny, but he's not always socially appropriately funny and doesn't seem to know if it's not socially appropriate. For example, he, my husband and I, my other son were away for the weekend. So he, I took the 19 year old, he and I went out to dinner at a place that we often frequent. Um, so the hostess when seating us said, um, oh, just the two of you tonight. And my son said, yeah, her husband recently died. Like with a very serious face. And I thought the hostess was going to, like, fall Gosh. apart because she knows, you know, knows our family well enough to, because, you know, we, we frequent this place. And I had to, like, that is not true. Why would you even say that? And he just laughed and said, because it's funny. And I was, like, just so, like, taken aback that he would think that that is funny. But if an individual did have, you know, struggle with alexithymia, would that be something we could see
1: possibly so like when we're talking about humor deficits or like using humor really inappropriately there's executive dysfunction is talked about social intelligence deficits lacking perspective taking where they don't pick up on the fact that this could rub that person the wrong way or make them afraid and then developmental immaturity as well just a few things now alexithymia sure it could be one factor of many but in the humor literature lots of moving parts but the top of the list would be those things i just mentioned
0: yeah and all of those things come into play for this individual also yeah so um yeah and he's gotten into trouble at work before saying something that he thought was funny but it was not socially appropriate at all especially with certain individuals you know present so um, you know, scary that he's you know it's trying to figure out how to interventions because that's where we're headed next. <laughs> I could use some interventions sure um, to help my kid. So um what are those? What are some interventions?
1: Well, if the person is going to treatment therapy interventions, whatever it is, rehabilitation, alexithymia is a barrier to rehabilitation when the professional, doesn't know what's going on. That's one barrier of many. Other barriers, self-awareness deficits, substance misuse, executive dysfunction, high levels of anxiety and worry and fear, sluggish cognitive tempo is a huge barrier, which we'll talk about, I believe, in a couple of weeks from now. Lacking motivation, learning problems, confusion. So it's not just alexithymia. It could be a, a, a host of things going on. Let's pick substance use treatment first, because there's a lot of literature on alexithymia and substance use treatment. And the literature points to the fact that if someone has drug and alcohol problems they're going to treatment, and if they have alexithymia, it could be a factor for riskier substance use issues, more having more severe addictions, higher cravings, and more likely to drop out of treatment and have relapses. And it's also been linked to having a higher level of a family history of alcohol related problems. So just think about this. Someone goes to treatment with alexithymia, this can interfere with treatment because they may lack emotional insight. And if they go to treatment where there's insight based approaches, they may struggle with that insight based approaches. Remember we've talked about abstract reasoning deficits. That's not a good combination because if you ask people insight-based approach questions, you ask a lot of how and why questions. For someone with certain disabilities, they may really struggle understanding how and why questions. So when we think of alexithymia within the context of treatment or intervention, screening for this, just knowing about it first is number one. If you don't even know what this word means and you're not on the lookout for it, then you're not going to ever catch it. If you're noticing the red flag indicators, collect relevant information from collateral sources, observations, starting to be aware of their emotional states. Does it match? How do they manage their emotional regulation? What is their emotional awareness like? And this can lead to a breakdown in the therapeutic relationship and alliance. So if a therapist or counselor doesn't know alexithymia, they may misread that person when in fact alexithymia could be a a driver of why they're engaging in some of those problematic behaviors. The interventions in this literature are many and varied. DBT has been talked about as something that might help. Improve alexithymia. DBT is dialectic behavioral therapy. It was developed for people with borderline personality disorder, but it's been used for so many emotional intensity problems. Music therapy can be helpful. Helping people connect to music can help them sense their emotions better. Mentalization based techniques would be something to look at that's supported in the literature. Journaling depending on the person's cognitive capabilities. Journaling, especially self-reflective journaling can be very, very helpful. Working with someone who understands emotional regulation and teaching emotional regulation skills, sleep improvement. If someone's chronically sleep deprived and if you're not targeting the sleep, that's a critical component, helping them get better sleep and learning how to manage their fatigue during the day can be very, very helpful. Empathy training has been talked about in this literature. Mindfulness, utilizing resilience-based interventions, teaching more stress management skills, utilizing trauma-focused approaches, so trauma-informed care could be very helpful. The very nature of using psychoeducation and family education is helpful. It's been shown by the just the very nature of teaching people about this in their families. That can be very helpful because now you're more aware, you're more empowered, and you might have more empathy. Reducing burnout, so burnout prevention, can be very, very helpful. Focusing on psychotherapy and group treatment, where the focus is on improving emotional awareness. And also looking at some of the post-traumatic growth literature interventions has been talked about in this research literature. So those are just a few. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in this literature. There's so much. And when I talked about interoceptive awareness, lots of things can improve that as well. So one of the things working with like an occupational therapist is highly recommended. Yoga may help with that breathing exercises, engaging in the creative arts and reading emotional books or stories are just a few things that can help with those kinds of things. But again, take this into account. None of these have been studied within the context of FASD per se.
0: Wow. There's just so, so much to unpack here. Um, I know a lot of what you just were sharing were all interventions. So, um for us parents and caregivers, if we want to right away begin to look into this and, and help our kids if we suspect um, alexithymia, um, you know, what what are, you know, can you give us a top three? Where should parents start if they think, "Ooh, I need to know more about this? I think this could apply to one of my kiddos. Well,
1: I'll just start reading the articles online, academic journals, buy some of the books that are scholarly look at a couple of those articles i wrote they're they're heavily they're all written utilizing the peer reviewed literature listening to this podcast there's some good short videos i know of on youtube that other people have done so i mean just educate yourself about the topic first and foremost secondly i just i always keep going back to sleep if the person isn't sleeping well Get sleep under control. Learn how to manage stress. Learn how to slow things down within that family. If it's, if it's always chaotic, go, 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 go. Slow down. Take time to sit as a family. Talk. Express emotions. Model the emotions appropriately. You're doing all that. You're really teaching self-regulation skills too. Sometimes animal-assisted interventions can be helpful incorporating music just talking getting off the screen there's actually some literature too that high screen time exposure can obviously contribute to some of these things too so starting there would would be my thoughts recommendations there's many more but that's a good starting point
0: yeah that's that's a great start, and really, it's all about what we've begun here is that conversation and just learning, learn everything we can about these different topics, and including alexithymia, um, so that we can begin to understand it ourselves and then help our kids better. Um, so, gosh, alexithymia, another interesting topic. So. Dr. Brown, I just thank you for continuing to educate us on what we need to know as parents and caregivers. I'm looking forward to our next episode when we're going to discuss. Um, I, is it? Are we going to do theory of mind or attachment? Which one are we tackling? I, I think can't it's remember. attachment
1: through a trauma lens.
0: Yes, attachment through a trauma lens. Excellent topic for us foster and adoptive parents. So I'm looking forward to that. And. Thank you again, Dr. Brown, for joining us and sharing your expertise with
1: us. You're welcome, and thank you, Sandra.
0: Wow, thank you for joining us today for this special series with Dr. Jared Brown. Be sure to join us next time um, when we talk about attachment and trauma. Um, Definitely um, vital for um, our journey as parents and caregivers. Um, It's amazing topics. I'm, I'm just still so like, Soaking up and pondering the alexithymia topic, but um, definitely next week, attachment and trauma very, very important um, conversation for us to have. Remember, our regular episodes drop on Mondays. Um, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can catch all of our episodes, including the bonus ones. And hey, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to let your friends, your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can listen and be encouraged and equipped and educated too. Um, And don't forget our resources uh, and supports for parents and caregivers all available on our website. Um, We've got the uh, free lunch and learn coming up on Wednesday the 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We have a three hour deep dive into FASD using the facets neurobehavioral model. Um, that is gonna be Saturday, January 21st. To register for any of the above, go to justicefororphansny.org. Um, we've got lots of resources there. And the two workshops are listed under on our events page. So make sure you check that out. Um, Always want to give a shout out to our business sponsors who support JFO and help us do what we do. Try Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Cooksaki and Coleman Insurance Agency. These businesses care about children and families in crisis. Be sure to find and follow Justice for Orphans on both Facebook and Instagram. You can find me Sandra Flack at both places too. Um, grateful that you spent your valuable time with us today. Um, thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review, and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.